This is Until All Are Free. I am your host, Preston Goff. Just recently, we at the Exodus Road completed the development of a theory of change and a five-year strategy for the next stage of our growth as a global organization. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to spend time discussing that process here because, frankly, it's just not good radio. However, the documents and strategic plan for the org is available on our website, and I'll link it in the show notes. It's a fantastic resource if you're curious to know about our plans for continued program strengthening and expansion. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because the process of creating these documents gave me the opportunity to be in really focused conversations with our global directors and teams. One of those individuals is Daniel, our Asia Regional Director here at the Exodus Road. Now, Daniel is a guy I look up to a lot, personally and professionally, and and his sharp-witted leadership at our organization is a gift that I think that you should know about as well. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Daniel. We had the chance to sit down together in person just a few weeks ago at our U.S. office in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I asked him to give us a window into what it's like to work with the Exodus Roads national teams in the work of intervention and aftercare in Asia. We also talked about the challenges of being steeped in this work personally. One final note, our conversation does include mentions and descriptions of the illicit activities we combat. We acknowledge the existence of sex and sexual exploitation. Okay, let's jump in. All right, it is my pleasure to be sitting across from Daniel, which is not your real name but is the pseudonym that we've assigned to you that you've taken on. You are our Asia Regional Director, and um, Daniel, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I'm just thrilled to be able to introduce you and share your story with our audience. Thanks, Preston. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, I've really treasured our time together. We were together recently in India, which was a really fun adventure. So good to see you again back here in Colorado, which is my home state. Um, My background, I was a a lawyer before getting into this field. I did child abuse and neglect cases here in Colorado in the Denver area. I was always passionate about fighting human trafficking, and it was my dream to eventually move abroad and get into that work. So In uh, 2015, I finally had that opportunity, moved to Cambodia, spent five years working there with a different organization doing similar work. And then during COVID, I hopped over to the Exodus Road, which has just been a, a dream come true so far. I really love this organization. So, Yeah, and you're not living in Cambodia anymore. That's right. I'm now uh, based in Thailand. I oversee our three Asian teams in Thailand, India, and the Philippines. I want to just step back for a second and just ask you um, to see if you can just expound a little bit for me on, you know, why it was that the issue of human trafficking maybe like caught your imagination, caught, caught your heart early on. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, I was in college and uh, I had always had an interest in international issues, human rights issues. I was getting a 
political science, international relations degree. But I'd never heard of human trafficking, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and uh, a speaker came. I don't remember who it was, don't remember what organization, but came and presented about human trafficking. And it was just a huge shock to me. It just like blew my mind. And so for me, it was just like a very clear, like God telling me that he's he's there and he wants me to do this. So it was really, it was pretty crazy when I was 21 years old and I just suddenly knew I was supposed to work in this field. I had no idea what I was supposed to do in the field. I actually didn't really know anything about the field. So that was, uh, that was my junior year. So I spent a lot of time my senior year doing research. I wrote a big paper for a human rights class about it. And then I went to law school thinking the law is probably relevant, yeah, but not sure. really knowing what I was doing. It's adjacent to the issue. It's, yeah, it's trafficking <laughs> it's adjacent. Important. Um, and so while I was in law school, I just took as many classes as I could related to international law, criminal law, juvenile law. Right before, I actually missed the first week of my last year of law school to go on this trip. I went to Cambodia for the first time to just do like a exposure trip, volunteer trip for two weeks with a aftercare organization there. And the focus was on serving the survivors in the home. But the director took the guys in the group out like, you know, undercover just to show us what it was about. And for me, I just, as bad as it was, I just walked into the bars and I, was, I just felt peace. Like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, I'm supposed to be working in intervention, which is not was never my plan. Um, my first love was aftercare, I would say. I'd never had any, I wasn't in the military. I wasn't, I'd never thought about law enforcement. I really wasn't on that track of intervention, but it just felt like that's where I was meant to be. So you currently live in Thailand? Right. Um, what's it like living in Thailand? What do you like about that? What's challenging about that? Yeah. Probably what I like about it the most is after previously spending five years in Cambodia, Thailand is just a, a more developed and generally nicer country. Better health care is huge. Um, more amenities. They have something like Amazon-ish, so you can like order stuff, which is really convenient. Convenient, right? not yeah. like living in Cambodia. Um, but for any, if any Cambodians listen to this, Cambodia is my first love. Uh, <laughs> Do not forsake Cambodia in no, your love for Thailand. I, I love Cambodia. Yeah. I think the hardest thing has been uh, our head office is in kind of a, not really remote, but just a smaller town, which is really good for work because we're far away from our investigations. It's safer to not be right in the heart of it. Um, but there's not much to do, not much social life, not much community where I'm living at now. So after living in the capital of Cambodia, that's probably the hardest part. Sure, yeah. So as regional director over Asia, you have a really unique opportunity, right, to, to be frequently interfacing with the teams of nationals that are doing investigative and aftercare work 
in those countries. I wonder if you might do us the honor of giving us a glimpse into those teams since you get so much like interface time with them. Um, if you might just describe our teams and maybe just talk about, you know, how you've seen them develop and the unique skill sets that each of those teams have that they bring to this fight. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's such a important point. That's one of the reasons why I applied to join the Exodus Road. And after my first interview was just thrilled with this organization because we focus on empowering national teams, putting national leaders first. But yeah, I have a, a really wonderful job in that I get to interact with all of our all of our nationals in Asia, all of our national staff. Thailand is our, our oldest team where the organization was started in Thailand. And our Thai team, we have three managers. We have country director, investigation director, and like an office manager. Eight investigators. And then we also now have our freedom home with six aftercare staff, I believe, there. Uh, so a little bit of a bigger team. Our investigators are spread out into three parts of the country. Uh, so we have a wide reach. We've been doing it a long time. And so our our team in Thailand is just very solid. Like the, we have a super strong foundation. And they're just really consistently do a great job. India is also is one of our older teams. Started in 2015. We're really blessed. Our country director in India, he started in 1999, long before any of us started in this field. And um, he's been rescuing victims of human trafficking for 23 years. And that has been his whole life for 23 years. So we are very blessed to have him and his team. Talk to me a little bit. Like I know we had the chance to be in India together. So we've both met met our India team, um, but you've spent time undercover with them. What's that like? What's it like watching them do that work? Oh, it's extremely inspirational because, you know, you meet these guys, they're very quiet, they're very humble, very unassuming, you know, they're shy around the Americans who are visiting. But when we go undercover, you, you know, they, they're just so good. They command the situation without bringing attention to themselves. So they kind of blend in, but they still, they command what they need to command. I mean, I could go on and on. Like the operating environment in India is very difficult and very different than a lot of other countries. These guys travel, they drive, they've dri driven 30 hours one way to, you know, rescue victims. And just the sacrifices that they make will just blow you blow you away. So they're, yeah. they're really special. Yeah, no doubt. So then the last country would be the Philippines, right? The Philippines. The Philippines yeah. is new um, since even you joined the Exodus Road. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, the Philippines. Philippines is kind of my baby. You know, I, I did a good amount of work in the Philippines in my old job, and I saw a great need there. So... When I joined the Exodus Road, I kind of <laughs> arrogantly was like, hey, new bosses, we should go to the Philippines. And they agreed with me. They listened to me. You know, the Philippines is a, a huge country in terms of population. 
and there's, of course, a lot of trafficking. Um, and there's only one other intervention organization. So, you know, I, I'm good friends with the leader of this organization, and he was the one telling me, please come here. Mm. Like, we need help. Yeah. So we didn't come there to compete. We didn't come there to, like, yeah. take any no. yeah. fame or glory. We were, like, came to help. So we started, officially hired our country director in April of 2021. So it's just been a little over a year now. Um, it's still developing. The team is still quite small. We're looking to to hire invest new investigators. But we've already accomplished so much. We just signed our MOU, Memorandum of Commitment, with the MBI, which is like the Philippines FBI. We have a memorandum of, well, I think, no, I said the wrong thing. Memorandum of Understanding, MOU. Yeah. We have a memorandum of commitment with the Philippines National Police, with an MOU coming later. Both of these signed with very high-ranking officials. We have relationships with multiple law enforcement units, and we've... We've already done a number of raids, which is amazing for how young the organization is there. Like we've gone through all the legal requirements. Our legal standing is very strong. And we actually, we just had a really huge operation. What was that last week? Uh, two weeks ago now, I believe. Just last week. That was last week. Yeah. One oh, week ago today. One week ago today. Yeah. Man. So it was a major disruption. Like it is sending shockwaves. The police team that did it is being threatened by a lot of people, and they had amazing bravery to take this case. 39 rescues in that case, but the bigger thing is probably just the disruption to that industry and a, a street that felt completely protected. Yeah. Um, so very exciting things in the Philippines and so much room for growth given the size of the country. Yeah. So in the midst of this, obviously... There's countless challenges. Um, I wonder if you could just share about one or two of the most like fierce challenges. Maybe one that came out of the blue and was really difficult in the last couple of years. Maybe another that's like, this is the ongoing challenge that we have to overcome. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of challenges, that's for sure. You know, I... And I, I just want to, again, speak so highly of our investigators and our staff on the ground. Investigation work, intervention work, is extremely difficult physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You know, you're working undercover. You need to be able to go into a dangerous establishment fit in adopt a persona adopt a persona fit in naturally you need to be able to find the victims find the minors or other victims you need to be able to sweet talk the traffickers you need them to make everyone like you and then when we're trying to put the case together with all the right little pieces of evidence that can overcome corruption and all of the barriers moving pieces of like intellectually putting the case together, maintaining your cover, maintaining your safety, maintaining healthy relationships with your loved ones. Our staff are doing this day in and day out. And 
So that's kind of a big a catch-all answer, but yeah, um, certainly, yeah. The the intervention work, yeah, it's just extremely difficult. And um, you know, the NGOs in this field, the no, the nonprofits, they tend to be very competitive with each other. They tend to not get along. They think they're the best. But like you said, there's more than enough work to go around, and we're all better off working together. And that's another thing I really liked about the Exodus Road compared to other NGOs that I've known, is we really believe that. And um, it's not just something we say, but we we live that out. You know, like I, I love, I've heard Matt, you know, our founder, one of our founders say many times, like, if the police in this location are choosing to work with this other organization, that's okay. We're there to make sure the rescues are happening, the arrests are happening. Like, it doesn't matter who does it. And, you know, we, we never seek glory or publicity or, um, you know, maybe maybe you might appreciate some of it as a, in marketing, but I personally am like, nope, don't mention us. It's yeah, fine. Like, absolutely. I don't want to be in the news. Like, you know, just we're behind the scenes. We want to empower and build up local law enforcement so that they in the future feel confident that they can do this work without us. We want to work ourselves out of a job. Um, that's an aside, getting away from your question. No, but it's good. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It is, it's a funny dichotomy, right? In that sometimes it, it is like, man, it'd be so much easier if we just like took a little bit of the glory. <laughs> and yeah. We could be like, hey, look at this great work that's being done. But then at the same time, we would yield this core value and identity of who we are, which is to say, you know, at the end of the day, we have this vision for, well, we have a vision for a world in which humans are never bought, sold, or exploited. And in order for that to happen, everyone in every community around the world has to, like, own their responsibility to see that come to fruition. And one large acting party in the midst of that should be the law enforcement. And so if we can if we can step step out of the way and empower law enforcement to do good work and be celebrated for that, then we're going to reach that vision likely much, much sooner. Uh, but that's a, that's a hard value to teach um, and to even train your audience and your supporters to have a hunger for in the organization that they support. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, our team, our teams do such amazing work. And I, I mentioned India before, in some places they're doing the vast majority of the work, but the, our law enforcement partners are also really amazing in many, many places. Um, you know, this big raid we just had in the Philippines, like the team that did this raid, like it's a, a lower level Philippines National Police team. You know, they have a tiny little office. None of them are paid well. None of them get any glory, but they just really, they really care. They really care about what's happening to the people in their communities. And they have targets on their backs now. And like, you know, yeah, our team found the lead and connected with the trafficker and delivered, cultivated it, cultivated it. Yeah. But these, these law enforcement officers put way much, much more on the line than we did. Sure. Um, yeah. And they, 
and their names are, are being publicized now. Our names are not, thank goodness. So, yeah, these guys should be celebrated. Yeah, and, yeah. Will you take us into the undercover environment for a minute? And, you know, you have a vast amount of experience undercover in Asia. Um, what is the role of a U.S. citizen living and doing this work in Asia? Why is that valuable? Yeah. Um, I think the important thing to remember is there are a huge variety of commercial sex establishments. So, you know, I've known some NGOs that really emphasize they're Westerners. These are the heroes, like the white savior complex type of thing. The white guys are going to come in and save everyone, which is really a bad attitude. But then I've seen other NGOs who have a much better attitude of like, no, we're going to empower local nationals. They're the better, more equipped to do this work and they understand their culture better. And, you know, that's a value of the Exodus Road. But I think what we found is, okay, but sometimes they need expats. Because in most of these countries, large portions of the commercial sex community only cater to foreigners. I've, I've had plenty of work with uh, our Delta team members, you know, just with the expats doing the expat thing. Um, but really my bread and butter is going out with our locals, you know, and they can, there's so many different things we can use, like in terms of a cover story, it's really an effective dynamic. And we've also had law enforcement requesting our, our expats for undercover work. But at the same time, if we only had expats, we would not know what we were doing and we would not understand the cultural context and we rely on our, our locals. Our real locals are still the main drivers of our work. So it's a great marriage there. All right, so I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to ask you to share, if you're comfortable, a little bit about your personal life and your personal journey. Um, because not only are you, Daniel, involved in the work and the counter-trafficking movement, but you're married to an individual who is also involved in this work. She is specifically in the aftercare space, right? Can you share a little bit just about, yeah, her passion and what her aim is, and then maybe what that has meant for you to together in marriage as you've, as you've journeyed together? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I actually technically met my wife. She's a Cambodian and I met her way back in 2010 on my first trip to Cambodia. She worked for the aftercare shelter that we were volunteering with. Um, just kind of a, a random person I met at the time. Yeah. I was uh, I was there with my other girlfriend. <laughs> Not my other, my one girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. I was there with my American girlfriend at the time. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, a kid back then. And, um, but we all, all of the Americans in our group like became Facebook friends with her. So I had a connection to her. And then when I moved to Cambodia, after I'd been there about a year, I thought I'd run into her at some like NGO seminar conference or something, but it never happened. So 
I decided to reach you, you out to You had to orchestrate her. something? I needed to orchestrate something, <laughs> yeah. So uh, her name always came up because she was a big deal in the field. At this point, she was running an aftercare organization with like 55 staff that oh were goodness. under her. Um, and they had some American interns who were in my friend group. And so they always talked about, you know, my, my future wife, like she's such a, a badass and like... I'm like, hmm, interesting. So I was like, I, yeah. At this point, you guys are just still acquaintances. Not even that. She, Not even that. She forgotten me. <laughs> so, but I like messaged her on Facebook and I was like, I don't know if you'll remember me. But we met in 2010 and, you know, I live here now and we haven't run into each other. So uh, you want to grab dinner? And she told me later, she thought I was just like a college student who wanted to like interview her or something like <laughs> I, I'll say hopefully a grad student. I mean, I was what 31 at this point. So I mean, yeah, <laughs> but I guess I have a young face anyway. So she had no idea and I was trying to make it a date and, uh, and she thought it was an interview. Yeah. She, well she, and she was, uh, I find out later, like culturally, like she would never just go meet a boy alone, but I think God intervened and she was going to show up, but she's like, Oh, let's just meet for lunch. And I was like, no, no lunch. Not going to get We're friend, going straight friend to, zone. Straight dinner. To dinner. <laughs> so finally okay. we had a compromise. We were going to dinner, but it was at like five o'clock. She claimed she had a, a Zoom call or something at like seven. <laughs> um, so we met and we just clicked immediately and she missed her fake Zoom call and we hung out for many hours. And yeah, I won't spend too much of the podcast on my love story, but it was really... It was, it was really like a fairy tale. We got engaged five months later, and um, we've been married almost four and a half years, and it's been amazing. She started working in the anti-trafficking field when she was 16 years old, part-time while she was in high school. She started working, I believe, I don't remember if this was her first actual position, but very soon she was a therapist counseling girls her own age <laughs> who had been rescued and she just worked her way up she became like a social work and therapy manager then she became social work and legal director and she ended up becoming deputy director of this NGO so she was really running it and this was all happening in her 20s basically so she she's a big deal in Cambodia um, and yeah, it was, it's really a core part of our relationship is our shared passion. Um, you know, this is not a, a job for us. It's not even just a career. Like, this is our life's mission. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I expect to be doing this until I die. Sadly, I, the issue will still be there. It, it won't, be, won't be gone in my lifetime, but... I can't imagine... You know, I, I feel like my wife and I, we, we have a similar, like, compassionate bend in, in heart for this work, right? But our careers and our paths looked very different, and I, I can imagine it's a lot to, to both be so steeped in this work and in the, in the joys and in the celebrations of it, but in the heartaches and the grief and the loss of it and the darkness of it. Yeah, I mean, I would be the first to say that our marriage would probably be easier if we weren't both in this field. But at the same time, 
you know, if we couldn't, if we didn't have a partner who understood this big part of our souls, like, I just don't think it would work. Um, sure. So. All right. I want to take you back big picture. If there were two things that you could invest in to significantly scale our impact in this fight against this issue in Asia in the next five years, what would it be? Oh, man, just two things. <laughs> I'm only going to give you two. Well, all right. So let's start with, with India. Right now we have, what, six investigators. We're working in one little corner of that country, which I just read a couple weeks ago that, I don't know if it's 10, 20 years or something, like their population is going to surpass China as the most populous country in the world. So we have six guys trying to fight this and the need is just enormous in India. So we want to have the funds to have a dramatic expansion of manpower um, just to do more cases. And then we specifically want to expand into the states in India and the communities in India that are where really the victims are mostly coming from. So I don't remember the names off the top of my head, but there's different communities within that caste system, poor communities where like the girls are basically just raised to become sex trafficking victims as children. So their their parents might sell them when they're babies. Um, and then they're going to be raised in a brothel environment and then maybe 12, 13 years old, they're going to be start being sold themselves. And so they'll be transferred from brothel to brothel, like throughout the country. And at the end of their journey isn't usually in Delhi, Mumbai, Calcutta, like the big cities. And there are still miners in those cities. There's, there's work to be done in those cities, but if we can kind of rescue them before they've, um, you know, been violated, it's a huge win for us. But we really want to expand into some of those areas and those communities and get the, the really young victims before they've gone through all of this trauma. So increasing the footprint in India. Increasing the footprint Magic in India. Magic wand wave number one. Yeah. Okay. Magic wand wave number two. I guess I'll shift over to the Philippines. We've started in the Manila area in Luzon, which is the northern, uh, the northern region. Luzon is an, an island, but it's also one of the three main regions. The other two are Visayas and Mindanao. And we, uh, there's still a ridiculous amount more for us to do in Luzon, but pretty much no one is doing this work in Visayas and no one's doing it in Mindanao. Mindanao is the area with um, some of the Islamic terrorist groups and it's pretty dangerous. So no one has been willing to work in those areas. So we really want to work in those areas and hope that we can grow and have teams rescuing in those areas. So that's two. I have about 20 more. <laughs> I'll give you one more for Thailand. Uh, one more for Thailand. Um, you know, Thailand has actually, that's probably 
the one where I have the the most constrained vision, mm-hmm. and that's just because we're already really well established, and we already have a nationwide reach in Thailand. Like we work literally everywhere in Thailand already. So for us, it's just about gradual growth, expanding our teams. We have an eight investigators now, not including a couple of our directors like myself who do investigations as well. But get more investigators. Um, we're not necessarily going to open a, a physical office, but get some kind of work from home guys in different regions and just spread out a bit more. And then probably the biggest thing for Thailand is that we want to go after these these big Westerner-focused bars. Um, for any anyone listening who's maybe been to Thailand, you know, Thailand is probably the most sexualized country in the world. Like, all these countries have bars, brothels, where you can buy sex with girls, minors. The end result is equally terrible. But kind of the path there, it's is different in Thailand. The bars are very, at least the ones for the Westerners, um, which is embarrassing for us as Westerners, but they are extremely sexually graphic, tons of nudity that we don't see in other countries. And uh, a quick aside, not really aside, it's what we're talking about, but, you know, our main focus is on getting traffickers arrested, but... We had a case in Thailand where the police really wanted to act, go after the buyers. Mm-hmm. Like, and not in a sting operation, but actually interview the victims, find out who they were sold to, and I assume interview the arrested traffickers. Um, and so the police actually, we just found out, they went out, they arrested nine guys, nine buyers, who had had sex with girls aged 13 to 16. Um and like, I think that's huge. Yeah. This stuff is on the news. Yeah. People are going to say, hey, I can't just go have sex with a little girl. Like, you know, I could get arrested. So th- this stuff, like, yeah. is what we're looking for. So I want to end our time with one question. And it's this. As you think back to this time with the Exodus Road so far, and you think about the stories and or the maybe it's just one little moment that has occurred for you in the investigative environment that gives you encouragement to continue on this path towards a, a vision and a reality that you've already named likely won't be accomplished in your lifetime. Are there any that come to mind? What keeps you encouraged in this? Well, it can be really hard when you think about the big picture because there's just so many victims left When I think about the big picture, what encourages me are major disruptions to the industry like we just had in the Philippines. Um, That case in the Philippines, I was involved in the case building, but I wasn't present for the raid. But even not being present, (laughs) the raid happening and me following it over WhatsApp (laughs) is still like a huge highlight for me. With that said, moments like that are very special. But the the primary driver for me is the individual victims um, that, you know, we're changing their lives. Even if we never end trafficking, we've changed 
these are real people. They're not statistics, and we've changed their lives. So um, for me, I have, man, probably thousands now of faces in my mind, you know, hundreds of names. Many haven't been rescued yet, but that's what fuels me. I've been undercover in definitely over a thousand places. I've, I've met thousands of people, victims, traffickers, whatever, managers. You know, it's really, kind. Of, in some ways it's kind of easy, it's kind of routine to me, but the emotional, the heartbreak has never gotten better. <laughs> My heart breaks for every single one of these girls or boys that I meet. Um, and that's really what, what pushes me forward. Well, thank you. Thanks on behalf of all of us here at the U.S. office, but, you know, um, on behalf of all the supporters, everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you for having the tenacity to keep, keep at it. Thanks for um, shepherding our teams internationally and being their advocate and their voice and helping to, you know, bridge communications between our office and, and the field. And thanks for sharing what you have in this episode. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I uh, appreciate being here. And thanks to everyone here at the U.S. office. Thanks to all our supporters, everyone who's contributed to our mission. Um, it makes a huge difference. Like something some, some of us like to talk about on the investigative side is like, we always joke, we love dark alleys. We try to find the dark alleys, and I, to me, I mean, we literally do try to do that, but to me, it's a metaphor of where is the dark alley globally, um, and we're finding those dark alleys, and we're going to keep going in them. So for those of us, for those of you who support that, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks for listening to this episode of Until All Are Free. This podcast is produced and hosted by me, Preston Goff. Until All Are Free is a podcast by The Exodus Road, a nonprofit with a vision for a world in which humans are never bought, sold, or exploited. Hey, if you've made it this far, it's likely because you're really passionate about this issue. You are a modern-day abolitionist with us in this fight, and we're so grateful. I want to let you know that now, until September 15th, 2022, the Exodus Road is raising funds to respond to specific survivor care needs that our country and regional directors, people like Daniel, have identified. This is a chance to respond with gifts that will have a very tangible impact on the lives of survivors. $10 can buy a hot meal for a survivor and $15 can fund a hygiene kit given in the moments directly following a rescue. My wife and I already jumped in and donated to the campaign and I'd love to challenge you to do so as well. You can make a donation now at theexodusroad.com. Just look for the banner message at the top of the page. Once again, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with another episode in your feed soon. Sure